0: The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au.
1: Well, that way, the Bible's behind me. Well, look, good morning, everyone. Uh, it is lovely to be here. Um, I'm Jimmy for today. Uh, it turns out that he has a horrible gastro disease right now, and I don't want you to be thinking about that. Um, but his distress hopefully won't lead to your distress. Um, we're going to look at one of my favourite uh, passages in the Bible together. Uh, So I'm going to pray as well. It's just my habit to pray before I jump in. So let's pray, and then let's look at this wonderful passage together. Gracious Father, as has already been requested, uh, we pray that as we look at your word, your ancient word to an ancient people, that we would see something of who you are, something of your beauty, something of how we could serve you, and something of the relevance of your word today. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you probably don't need me to tell you that we live in a rapidly changing world and one of the gifts uh, of getting a little bit older, I'm kind of middle-aged now, uh, is that time-honoured tradition of being able to say to your kids, back in my day, beautiful, beautiful game. I've got uh, two boys that have now moved out of home, they're both at university, and this just gives me heaps of material to work with. Because back in my day, when I went to university, I lived in southern New South Wales, a little town called Deneloquin, moved to the Big Smoke, moved to Sydney. One of the things that I just loved about Sydney is because it was the Big Smoke, it actually had four TV stations. Could you imagine what it would be like moving to somewhere that actually had four TV stations, had this new fandangled station called SBS, just changed my view of the world of all these things called documentaries. I'd never come across them before. And of course, when I first got to university, there was this brand new thing that had just come out called the internet. And it was so cool because when I first got to university, you had to hand write all your assignments and the way you handed them in was by putting them in a box that could be locked at five o'clock on Friday. So if it wasn't in, you just failed. Whereas today, due to the uh, technology of the internet, you can do everything at home online. And you can submit an assignment at five minutes to midnight and even if you're late, they let you in because all you got to do is complain at university and you get your way. So every, everything has changed. And so when I went to university, it was almost like I lived in a different world. It was a different time. There was no email. There was no mobile phones. It was just different. And, of course, the world is changing not just from a technology point of view. There's no more handwritten assignments at uni. It's, it's socially changing as well, isn't it? And you probably don't need me to point that out to you, that we live in a rapidly changing world when it comes to our culture. Did you know only 10 years ago, well actually 11, 11 years ago, there were only two options available to you on Facebook when it came to declaring your gender? And that was only 11 years ago. 11 years ago, if you jumped on Facebook, you opened up a new profile, your options were male or female. Then in 2014, they expanded that out to 20. Then about six months later on, they expanded it out to 50. And at last count, it's over 72. In the last 10 years, we've gone from two to 72-plus options when it comes to gender and your social media. Now, if nothing else, that is rapid social change, isn't it? And when you live in a world that is changing rapidly when it comes to technology, I still remember my dad's first mobile phone. It was so mobile, it came with its own handy carry bag so you could fit the battery in it, and it was about this big. And in my generation, you can now put a computer in your back pocket and be in contact with everyone you've ever met. The world is changing rapidly when it comes to technology, But, of course, it's changing rapidly when it comes to society as well. Throw into the mix that we're starting to live in what some would call a post-Christian culture. And when there's massive changes, and you don't really know where those changes are going to take us, and when some of those massive changes are that it feels like less and less people are interested in God, it's, it's not hard to feel just a little bit overwhelmed at times, is it? I work at universities in a couple of weeks. I'm about to step foot on campus. And I'm going to try and tell the people when I get there that there was this guy called Jesus who lived and died and rose again and they need to get to know him. There's not many people on university who know the story of Christmas. We live in a rapidly changing world. But the thing is, what we shouldn't do as followers of Jesus is actually think that this is anything new in the history of God's world. And what I love about 1 Kings 17 is it actually speaks to people like us who live in a rapidly changing world where things, really big things, have changed and have changed dramatically and have changed quickly. Now to help you see that, I want you just to open your Bible, have a look at just before 1 Kings 17. I want you to jump in at chapter 16 and let me show you how quickly the world has changed for the people of God. In 1 Kings chapter 16, in verse 29, you read, In the 38th year of Azar, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Onri, began to reign over Israel. Now, it's easy to gloss over that, but that verse alerts us to the fact that within about two generations, within about 50 years, Israel has gone from having one king to two. That's the equivalent of, in 50 years' time, Australia going from being one nation to two. That's fairly dramatic social change, isn't it? But there's more. Verse 30. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And if we keep reading, we would see that the sin of Omri is that he followed in the footsteps of uh, Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who famously institutionalised, actually formally brought in, the worship of pagan gods. And he particularly brought in the worship of, of foreign gods such as Baal and we need to read that because as we keep going have a look there in chapter 16 again you read that one of the things that Ahab does is he marries Jezebel don't ever call your daughter Jezebel she is going to be one of the big enemies of the people of God we're going to see that as we keep reading and the reason she's an enemy of the people of the god is because keep reading Jezebel is the daughter of Ethbaal king of the Sidonians. Now quite often what the Old Testament will do is it will use names in such a way that points out something about the character of the person. And so King Ethbal, his name literally means with Baal and Baal is a foreign god. What's Jezebel's mantra in life? What's she trying to do? Well, she's kind of R.I. for Baal, (laughs) religious education for Baal. She wants to turn the people of Israel from with Yahweh, to with Baal. Now who's Baal? Uh, Baal's an interesting god. He was the fertility god and the idea behind Baal was that he would die at the end of the fertile season only to be reborn in the spring, the beginning of the fertile season, and you'd know he'd been reborn because the seasons would change. You know, it would start to rain, the wind would blow, and that was the sign that Baal was doing his thing. Now, you've got to remember these were agrarian people. These were farmers. And so back in the day, if you lived in Baal Territory, then the way you thought about Baal was a little bit the way we think about car insurance today. Like only silly people drive cars without getting it insured because if something goes wrong, you're just not covered. And that's actually how they thought about Baal. Only really foolish people wouldn't try to get Baal on your side. Now, how do you get the fertility god, the god of rain, the god of wind, the god of seasons, how do you get him on your side? Well, you've got to try and motivate him, get him in the mood kind of thing. And there were sort of basically two ways of doing that with this god Baal. Positively, he's the god of fertility. You could engage in ritualised sex, in prostitution, to sort of try to get Baal in the mood. Or negatively, you could kind of try to placate his anger through some sort of sacrifice. So what did the people who worshipped Baal do? Well, they did ritualised prostitution, or they killed things that were dear to them, so that Baal, the god of seasons, the god of fertility, would do his thing and you could eat your crops that year. Now, to put all this in context, imagine for a moment that you, as a 20, 25-year-old, left this church, left this area of the world, left Australia and went and lived overseas for like 50 years. And 50 years' time, you just remember the good old days and you want to take your kids and your grandkids back to Australia, back to Queensland, back to the Sunshine Coast, back to your church, and you just want them to see where you grew up. Would it occur to you, if that was you, that in just 50 years, when you came back home that not only would your church no longer be proclaiming the name of Jesus, but it would actually be insisting on ritualised prostitution. That's a massive change, isn't it? If in just one generation you came back to this church expecting it to have grown, people to be saved, worship of Jesus, and they're actually uh, insisting... On prostitution for the sake of serving a foreign god that is massive massive change what we're about to read in 1 King 17 is a post Yahweh world where there's been rapid social change rapid change with the worship of God and it seems like the world has moved on it seems like Israel had God knew God but rejected and moved on from God and went with their neighbours Which kind of feels like our world, doesn't it? Where they had God, they knew God, but they've rejected God and they want to move on and live like their neighbours. And so let's see what you do when it comes to trying to survive in a post-Christian, a post-Yahweh world. Well, chapter 17, verse 1. Now, Elijah, again, names are significant. Elijah's name means Yahweh is my God. This is going to be the mouthpiece of God, this guy. Amazing guy. The Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, the king, as the Lord, as Yahweh, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now, what the Bible does really, really well at the opening sentence or any chapter is it sets the scene, and this uh, is no exception. Uh, And if we were reading this in Hebrew, which we're not, but if we were, the last phrase would be, except by the mouth of my word. That's actually what it says in Hebrew. And the only reason that's significant is that the last 20 plus times in the Bible that we've read the phrase, except by the mouth of, or the edge of, It's actually been fighting words. Every time that phrase has occurred, it's except by the mouth of the edge of my sword. And then some warrior whips out his sword and a battle takes place. These are fighting words. And so what you're meant to do, I think, just to sort of get it into today's kind of imagery, you're meant to see Elijah rocking up to the king in camo gear. You know, he's got the flak vest on, he's got his pistol at his side. He's there to fight and he's going to fight with the words of God. And it is a fight because did you notice what he did? He's challenging not so much Ahab but Baal himself to a duel. Remember, what's Baal do? He's the fertility god who's in charge of rain and wind. And what's God's prophet going to do? Well, he's challenging Baal to a fight. I'm going to take away your ability to control the wind and the rain. It's not going to rain for the next couple of years. And then as you keep reading, what does God then do through his warrior? Well, he figuratively removes the word of God from Ahab. That is, Elijah nicks off. And the king has no more access to God's word. God's word is final, no more rain. And then his mouthpiece, his prophet, disappears. And that's exactly what happens. There's no more rain. Now, God is not only in control of the wind and the rain. In verse 4, we see um, God taking on one of the other strongholds of Baal's supposed power. He's in control of animals as well. What did Baal, the fertility god, do? Well, he made the animals, he made the livestock fertile so that you could have more things to live off. But it's actually God who controls the animals. And so in verse 4 we read, uh, God has commanded the ravens, the crows, to feed Elijah. Now I've got to admit, a long time ago I was a microbiologist and the idea of a crow bringing its food to me so that I can eat it every night, that doesn't really appeal to me. If you have h issues just there. But can you see the symbolism that's going on? But more than that, this is not just God taking on the supposed powers of Baal. This actually kind of reminds us of some really important scenes in the Bible. Take note when the messenger of God is miraculously fed in the desert. Think Moses, think Jesus in the wilderness. This is the sort of stuff God does when something big is about to go down. And so here we've got all the ingredients. We've got God's prophet. He's out to do battle with a foreign god. He's being fed by birds in the wilderness. What's about to happen? Well, what's about to happen is we're about to grapple with one of the biggest questions you'll ever come across in your life. It's a basic question, but it's the question i reckon for christians and the question is is god good it's basically what the question is the way the question is going to be asked for us in this chapter is what's it look like to live under god's control to live under his rule what's it look like to live in god's empire the first couple of verses the first paragraph it lets you know that god is in control he's been easily able to defeat baal he's taken away all his powers from him but What's it like to live under God? Well, initially it's actually not so great. Poor old Elijah, not just does he get fed by birds, but due to the very activity of God, verse seven, we read, "After a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land." Now we know there's no rain in the land. We didn't need to be told that. It's just the author's way of reminding you, God's behind this. God is the one who has stopped the rain. God is the one who was punishing Baal. But inadvertently, God is now making life harder on his people, on his prophet. Is this really the sort of guy you, God, rather, you'd want to serve? Well, what's God going to do is he backed himself into a corner. And So verse 8 we read, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Now, one of the things that makes it a little easier when you read the Bible is just to remember it's real. Like I kind of forget that from time to time, but this is real, it really happened. And the reason you need to remember that is verse 9 kind of makes no sense if it really happened. This is Elijah being told to go to Zarephath, which is a town right near where he lives. And then God is reminding him who lives there. That's a bit odd, isn't it? That's a little bit like me saying to you, I want you to go to New Zealand and by the way, you'll probably meet some Kiwis. Kind of redundant, isn't it? If you know the area, you know who lives there. Why is the Bible reminding us who lives in the town right next door to Elijah? It's not as if Elijah's forgotten. Well, it forms a really important narrative moment. When was the last time we heard about Sidon? The last time we heard about Sidon is when we met King Ephbaal, with Baal. What is God doing? He's getting his servant, not just to show that God is the God of Israel, he's getting his servant to actually invade Baal's territory, to go over to Baal's heartland, to go to where Baal's king is. He's sending Elijah even further on the attack. Now, what's he going to do? How's he going to survive once he gets there? Verse 9, Behold, now... What I love about the ESV, it's a horrible Bible version to read out loud. Doesn't it just sound ridiculous? It's barely English. But that's actually kind of helpful because it uses non-English words like behold. Behold actually isn't a word. In Hebrew, it's an exclamation mark. And so it's a bit hard to start a sentence with an exclamation mark. So we made up this word behold. The only reason you need to know that is it's just the author's way of trying to get your attention. So the beauty of a clunky version like ESV is it'll tell you, behold, and that's your clue, oh, it's time to listen. What is it that you need to listen to? Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. The storyline is now going to revolve around a widow. Why a widow? If during a drought... God was going to send his crack soldier into the neighbour's territory to take on the king and to take on the God of that area and that guy was going to sort of get his supplies off the land, so to speak. Why would you go to a widow? That's like going to a New South Welshman and trying to find a new and intelligent idea. Your chances of finding one. But like they're slim, aren't they? But that's kind of the point. Behold, to keep you alive... I'm sending you into enemy territory where a widow is actually going to look after you. And from a literary point of view, verse 10, it's like a teenager with links to Yoda deodorant all over him. It just grabs your attention. There are so many things in this verse that just scream out, listen to me. So have a look at verse 10. The first thing is, there's a behold, and the scene is the city gates. Now, the city gates back then is a little bit like your courthouse today. It's where all the really important decisions are made. Whatever's going on there, it's big and it's official, and that's what happened at the city gates back in the day. So you get this behold, you get the city gates mentioned, it's going to be prominent, and then you get a type scene. A type scene is one of those familiar things that just keeps happening in the Old Testament, and whenever it does, it's significant, so it helps you listen up. And this time the the type scene, the reoccurring pattern, is a foreign woman helping out one of God's servants by providing hospitality at a well. So if you know the storyline of Genesis 24, uh, God has made promises to Abraham, but for those promises to come true, he needs to have kids, he needs to have offspring, Abraham has Isaac. Isaac needs to have offspring, so he needs a wife. He doesn't have one. So Abraham sends his servant off and this servant gets to a well and behold, a woman gives water and hospitality and the promises of God survive. Whenever something goes down at a well in the Bible, just take note. And here we are and we have Elijah coming to the widow and he says to her, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. But then he actually ups the ante. And also bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. This is a foreigner, the city gates, at a well, asking a widow to provide for him in the stronghold of the enemy. What's going to happen? Her reply is actually both striking and actually quite sad. She says in verse 12, As the Lord your God lives. Now we've already had someone say today how much they love Moses. And Moses' fingerprints are all over Elijah. He just keeps reminding you of Moses. And what did Moses do? He let the whole world know that there is only one true God and that God is Yahweh. And he did that through 10 miraculous signs. What does Elijah do? He comes to remind the whole world that there is only one true God. And he does that through miraculous signs. Listen to this lady, as the Lord your God lives, she's heard of Yahweh. The whole world has heard of Yahweh, but listen to what life is like once you know Yahweh is in control. I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it, and die. What was life like for this woman when Baal was in control? She lost her husband. What's life like for her now that Yahweh's in control? She's about to lose her son and her life. Is she any better off? Like what? what's it like living under Yahweh? Do we live in a post Christian world? Have people moved on from God because of what God is like? What's life like? Living under Yahweh. Living under Jesus. It's actually the very question you ask yourself every single time you ever struggle with temptation. You ever been tempted to do something you think God doesn't want me to do? Why are you tempted to do it? Because you think you'd be better off if God wasn't in control think of whatever it is you're tempted to do you want it because you think it's good what was the very first temptation in the bible doubting the goodness of God every time you are faithless it's because you're actually asking this question are you actually good because it doesn't seem good God You're asking me to do this thing but it doesn't seem good and I don't want to do it and I can't see how life is better off. I reckon I'd actually be better off with that thing and you're telling me no. Now, why are you doing that? You're not on my side. You're not good. What's this woman's experience of living under Yahweh's rule? Starvation and nearing death. Is God good? Is he actually worth following? What is life like when Yahweh is in control? Do we live in a post-Christian world because of what God is actually like in that there's something better somewhere else? What's interesting is that built into this accusation, it's an answer, but you can feel what the author is trying to get us to grapple with, can't you? Built into this accusation, your God isn't good, is a response from Elijah that is just so godlike. Did you notice his response to her pathetic and horrible and sad situation? He bosses her around. He actually commands her. And he tells her, take up your cross and follow me. Well, sorry, he tells her, do this really hard thing. That's what God is like. When you're helpless, and when you're struggling, and when you're in need, what does God do? He commands you to do something. Not really what we're looking for, is it? But that is classic of God. In fact, it's what he always does. But here's the thing. They are commands, but his commands are always compassion in action. Because that's what God is like. Command, don't fear. Command to this woman, we've nothing, feed me first. Command, feed me first, then feed yourself. Promise. And you'll live. Now don't forget the context. A starving foreign woman being told to give up her last meal for God what would you do? I mean, what would I do? I'm kidding myself if I think I'd give up my last meal. The closest I've ever come to starving was the great toilet paper shortage of 2020. (laughs) And I've got to tell you, if you'd come knocking on my door that day, sorry, you're on your own. God asks the impossible of this widow, doesn't he? Like, you just, you can't imagine it happening. But then the impossible is just what God does. Verse 15. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for many days. Isn't that just extraordinary? Verse 16. The jar of flour was not spent. Neither did the jug of oil become empty. According to the word of the Lord that was spoken by Elijah. Isn't that just extraordinary? Desperate need commands to give up everything and yet these commands are actually compassion in action the woman obeys and is saved and god is glorified and really the chapter could just stop there couldn't it but there's actually a bigger lesson even than this that we need to learn what have we learned so far? We've learned Yahweh's in control. We've learned he's easily able to plunder the realm against enemies. He's easily able to take away the power of these so-called other gods. He's able to keep his servant going. But there's actually even a bigger enemy that we need to do battle with in this chapter. And there's an even bigger lesson we need to learn so that the next time we're tempted to doubt the goodness of God, we've got something even bigger to hold on to. And that's that God has not just come to defeat his enemies in terms of foreign gods. He's come to defeat the biggest enemy that we all face. He's come to defeat death itself. And he's going to do that through resurrection life for the guilty. For people like you and me. And this is exactly what we see as we jump right in. Verse 17 After this, after this miraculous intervention of God, after the family is kept alive through the saving activity of God, the son of the widow, the woman of the house, became ill. Now, hopefully I've taught you to listen for redundant information, not just in my sermon, but in the Bible. Can you spot the bit in that verse that isn't actually needed? Totally superfluous. Do you spot it? After this, the son of the woman... The mistress of the house became ill. Did you notice that whole mistress of the house? We just didn't need it. There's only one woman there and we haven't forgotten who she is. It could have just said, After this, the son became ill. That's all we need to know, but it's the son of the woman, the mistress of the house. What's going on? Well, the Bible does not waste words, it is a cracker of a read. And, you know, if you've got four or five years, go and learn some Hebrew. It's well worth your time because you actually get to see some of the word plays that are going on. Now, just to point it out to you, what's fascinating is the phrase the mistress of the house. In Hebrew, it's the word Baal with a feminine word ending. It's something like the word Baala, something like that. Now, it does mean the mistress of the house, but it's a play on words. What's the author doing? He's wanting you to connect the son to Baal. It's the son of the woman, the Baala, the, the Baal son. What's happening? Well, as Baal's influence over his own territory is starting to wax and wane, as, you know, as he's on the way out, we actually now see the son's life is on the way out as well. And it's on the way out that he becomes ill. But it's not just any illness. He's ill to the extent that there was no breath left in him. And the word breath here, again, it's a play on words. There's a normal Hebrew word for breath and wind, the stuff we breathe in and out. It's the word uh, ru'ah, and it keeps coming up again and again in the Old Testament. But that's not this word. It's a different word. It's more like our word for breeze, nasha'ah. It's really the word you would talk about for wind. You know, the stuff blowing around out there. It's not the breath word, it's the breeze word. Now, I've heard people say I've got the breath knocked out of me. I've never heard anyone say I've had the breeze knocked out of me. This son is dying, the son of Baal, because the breeze is gone. Do you see what the author's doing? Baal is the god of wind and rain. Baal has been defeated. This is a son of Baal, a connection to Baal. And so is God also after those who belong to Baal. God's defeated Baal. What's he going to be like when it comes to the treatment of Baal's people? Is he going to do what we all do? You actually attack everyone associated with your enemies? What can this son expect? Because God has come in and defeated his God, and because of that, he is dying. What can you expect if you're an enemy of God? Can you see the problem? You're an enemy of God. You are by nature an object of his wrath, his personal anger towards you. You know how some people say there's a difference between sin and the sinner? That's like saying if I slap you in the face, you're angry at my hand and not me. It is total nonsense. God is only angry at people, not the hands that slap. He is only angry at you. You are by nature an object of his wrath, of his rightful anger towards you because of the way you've treated him. He is angry at this son because of the way this son has treated him. He's not only angry at foreign gods, he's angry at people who have ignored him. What can you expect from God if you have offended him? This son, this connection to Baal, is having the life drained out of him. What can we expect? Well, the the mother, at least, expects judgment. That's what she seems to think. Verse 18. What have you against me, O man of God? Have you come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son? She, she gets it. I've sinned. Judgment death that's what she's expecting of Yahweh and notice Elijah's response it's what God always does it's a command but again it's compassion in action and we're going to get a little preview as to what God does when he meets the people that he's angry with give me your son Yahweh is a jealous ruler. His authority is absolute. He issues commands. He punishes disobedience. But he's actually nice. He's really nice. Oh Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. Did you notice he pays praise three times? Death of the son is in front of him. And so three times he prays. And what happens through these three prayers? Through these three prayers... You actually get a resurrection you actually get a foreign son coming back to life i mean how cool would it be if the bible could sort of kept this vibe going and you've got this three you know the true iron god the father son and spirit working together over three days to let the death of a son the son who should be facing punishment that's what the death was all about but actually that's not the final word because the three works together with the son and the son comes back to life so that we could all have hope i mean how cool would that be but that's probably wishful thinking but at least for here, can you see what happens? What do you do when you're faced with an overwhelming God that you can't manipulate? You see, Baal, you could kind of manipulate. You could do things positively or negatively. What do you do when you're desperate and you deserve God's punishment, but you just want to live? All you do is ask, you, you can't manipulate Him. You can't motivate him. All you can rely on is him. And what is God like? He's powerful. Defeat the foreign enemies. The whole world does whatever he says. But he's good. Verse 22, And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. He listened. And the life of the child came into him again. And he was revived. Can you see the way the life came back in? This is the first resurrection in the Bible. And don't miss who came back to life a foreigner, an enemy of the people of God. This is the sort of God Yahweh is. Oh, yeah, he's powerful, he's in control, but he's not only good, he's good towards the helpless. And he's good towards the guilty and he actually offers life in the place of death. Listen to the way it ends. This is the testimony of a foreign woman who has now lived under two gods. What's her testimony? Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. God is good. And what began back then in 1 Kings 17 has actually continued through history. What we see in 1 Kings 17 is we see God, if you like, start to leave Israel and to invade the nations around him. He's stretching out, if you like, his arms. He's taking on the foreign gods. But, of course, it didn't finish just there. And it didn't finish with God taking on foreign gods. It finished with God taking on, well, the gods, if you like, the power. It finishes with God taking on death Itself, And so we read in places like Colossians 2, verse 13, and you, you were dead. Here's your resurrection language. You were dead. You were like the sun. Why were you dead? Well, you were dead in your trespasses. That's the bad stuff you've done. And the uncircumcision of your flesh. That's another way of saying your beautiful body has actually become putrid because of the way that you use it, because of the way that you actually treat God And his words. You're dead and you're disgusting. That's the message of Colossians 2. And yet, what does God do? God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. And he did that, verse 14 of Colossians, by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands that he set aside, nailing it to the cross. God is the gracious God who reaches out and forgives and restores. And he does that while staying true to form, while actually still destroying the false gods of this world. So, Colossians 2.15, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them on the cross. What's God like? What have we learned from 1 Kings 17? We've learnt that God is a God of wrath who punishes enemies and yet he's a God of mercy who forgives enemies. We've learnt that God is the God who rules the nation and yet serves powerless people. And we've seen on the way that God insists on justice and yet grants mercy. And we've seen that God is the God who takes life, and grants eternal life and we've learnt that God triumphs over his enemies for our good so that we can have hope so what are you going to do with this passage today you'll actually decide what you've learnt today when you walk out of this place and the next time you're tempted to do something you think God doesn't want you to do whatever that is You'll grapple with this exact question. Is God good? Does He actually want what's best for me? Now, remember the teaching in this passage God is good and He's going to use that goodness to overcome the problem of death. Really important lesson. Because if you mistake God's goodness for overcoming a different problem, you might misunderstand what He's doing. God is good and He's come to defeat the enemy, death. So, you can have hope forever. You look for the goodness of God in that, and you will never be disappointed. Look for the goodness of God somewhere else to keep promises he hasn't made. Then you'll be part of the reason why this world has become post Christian. But just remember while there may well be such a thing as post Christian, there's no such thing as post God. This is God's world. And when he speaks, stuff happens. He controls this world. He controls the wind. He controls the animals. And he controls people. Christianity may be waxing. It may not be. I don't really know what the stats are. But what we do know is there's only one world. And this is God's world. And he's in control. And the good God, who is on the side of his people has come to defeat the enemy, death, so that you can have hope and life forever. Just remember that the next time, like me, you're tempted to do something, you think he doesn't want you to. He's actually on your side. Let's pray.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others